Welcome to Healthcare Beat, a healthcare podcast brought to you by Seifarth Shaw's cross-disciplinary healthcare team. Each beat will focus on key industry trends and the latest developments while identifying practical takeaways for those in this space. I'm Adam Lawton, partner in Seifarth's corporate department and host of Healthcare Beat. Let's jump in. On today's episode, we're joined by Ben Conley, a colleague at Seifarth and member of the firm's employee benefits practice. Ben, welcome to the Healthcare Beat. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. Ben, today we wanted to talk a little bit about this No Surprises Act. It's a new law went into effect January 1, 2022. Maybe where we start is you can give us a little background on what's the problem that this law was intended to address. Sure. Yeah. So the issue is surprise medical bills and specifically in the context of people who actually have health insurance, right? While many of us do this on a day-to-day basis, what we often forget is that insurance, be it auto insurance, health insurance alike, is confusing, uh, you know, with all the terminology, including deductibles, out-of-pocket maximums, and specifically networks. And so in this context, the concern Congress was attempting to address were circumstances where participants went to a non-network doctor or provider, hospital emergency room, whatever the case might be, and thought to themselves, or didn't think because it was an emergency situation, right, I'm, I'm going to be good here because I have health insurance. They, you know, receive their emergency services, are sent about their way, hopefully fully healthy at this point. They get a note from their plan saying, we're going to pay 60%, here's your 40% responsibility, which is a big figure, but something they were expecting. But then suddenly out of the blue, they get a note in the mail from that hospital system, doctor, whoever the case might be, that says your health plan didn't pay the full cost of coverage. So your remaining obligation to us, the uh, healthcare provider, is X dollars. And we've all heard these stories, right? I think I saw a stat that one in five insured adults has had a surprise medical bill in the last two years. And these can be large amounts, right? Because these services are priced according to the circumstances. And certainly when you have a circumstance where you have, say, for instance, air ambulance transport, you know, you think about the cost of an airplane ticket if you're flying with 300 people. If you're being taken on an exclusive trip from the Hawaiian Islands to California or from Key West to a hospital in Miami, right, that can be a big bill and a big unexpected bill. So that was the context Congress was attempting to address here. And even more specifically, they wanted to address the circumstance where these bills arise due to no fault of the individual, right? So like it's one thing if you have, you're planning a a scheduled procedure six months from now, and you have all the time in the world to research who's network doctor and where you should go for the service. It's another if you're in a high, uh, firework exploded in your hand and, and you need to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. What Congress doesn't want people to do in that circumstance is to get online and, and research what's a network hospital. They want you to go get your finger sewed back on as quickly as possible. And that's the scenario Congress was attempting to address. And now, you know, talking about the law itself, What exactly does it do with these surprise medical bills? Sure. So broadly speaking, what the law does is it identifies a handful of circumstances and it says in these circumstances, there will be no more surprise billing to the individual at issue. And it requires that that burden of that cost that would otherwise be attributable to a participant be shared between the health plan and the provider, right, Uh, who are the other two parties in the picture there. So the three scenarios they have identified and targeted in this law are, number one, emergency services provided by non-network providers. 
because when you have an emergency service with a network provider, there's no balance billing. That's the idea of a network is there's an agreed upon rate, but with non-network providers, there's no agreed upon rate. So there might be balance billing. So that's scenario one, non-network emergencies. Scenario two is a circumstance where a participant has gone to an in-network facility but has received services by a non-network provider. So this is the circumstance where you have a hospital that has visiting privileges for a certain subset of doctors, say anesthesiologists or the like, and the participant goes into that hospital assuming they are in-network, but then receives services from a doctor who is non-network and may incur costs in that circumstance. Although they have carved out scenarios where the participant knowingly consented to receiving those services by the non-network doctor. So this is, once again, the circumstance where the participant is unaware and or has not consented to receiving those non-network services. And then the final, and this is a biggie too, is air ambulance. Air ambulance has always been a challenge because a lot of these scenarios have been addressed at the state level by states dictating or prohibiting surprise billing. But air ambulance is this weird space where, because uh, you're riding in these vehicles traveling through the air, right? a helicopter or airplane or the like. It's technically outside of the realm of, of governance for states, falls under the federal government's realm of responsibility. And until this law, there had been no regulations regarding what could be charged in those circumstances. So those are the three scenarios. And what essentially the law requires is that when a participant incurs uh, medical services in one of those three scenarios, the health plan is required to reclassify that from being a non-network claim to being a network claim and pay according to their, essentially their median network rate, what's called the qualifying payment amount. So had this service been incurred in network, let's look at our average payment that we would pay in that context and apply that for the participant. Similarly, the out-of-pocket costs for the participant in that context are required to be credited towards their deductible and out-of-pocket maximum of the plan. So if it was a big cost, notwithstanding the fact that it was in network, participants get credit towards their deductible in that context. And then the final piece is that if those circumstances have played out, there can be no balance billing to the participant. The health plan has paid its amount, and then the provider who provided those services in that non-covered, non-network setting cannot seek any redress against the participant for the amount unpaid by the plan. There is a process whereby if the provider disputes the amount of payment by the health plan, they can submit to arbitration and an arbitrator is required to come in and carry out what's known as a baseball-style arbitration in which both the health plan and the provider submit their sort of last best offer. And rather than the arbitrator saying, well, let's split the baby and pick a number in between, the arbitrator picks the number that is closer to what the arbitrator, you know, as dictated by law, thinks is the right amount. And that party wins, uh, and that party gets their arbitration fees covered and the like. So both parties are very incentivized to go in with a real offer in that setting. So again, the result is that health plans probably going to pay a little bit more than they would have historically paid. Providers are probably going to get a little bit less than what they would have historically been able to get from the participant. But in that circumstance, the participant would have no obligations other than their regular cost sharing that would apply had they gone in network. Obviously, there are two sides to a dispute like this. There's, you know, the plans and, you know, as you explained, the plans are perhaps paying more than they otherwise would have in a true out-of-network situation. The provider is potentially getting less than they otherwise would have if this had been true out-of-network and they'd just been able to do a surprise bill or a balanced bill. How have these two sides reacted to the law? Yeah, really good question. I mean, this is a law that has been batted around in various iterations in the years leading up to its passage uh, at the end of 2020. And at each subsequent iteration, there were parts that were attempting to cater to both communities, right? 
And inherent in this type of proposal where you're pulling out the ultimate payer, that being the participant who incurred the services, it's going to be a bit of a zero-sum game and that somebody else is going to have to pick up that cost. So ultimately, frankly, neither the employer plan community or health plan community nor the provider community was thrilled with this result because it's a circumstance where they both either paid less or got more and now that's being taken away and they're being forced to work it out between themselves. What we are seeing is, notwithstanding the fact that neither side is happy, it seems like providers are a little less happy than plans in this circumstance. And the reason why is a little technical, but high level relates to the way that the law calculates what the plan must pay as a matter of first course, right? That qualifying payment amount, which provides a lot of discretion to the plan to look at what it's paying internally and pay commensurate with whatever that amount might be even if that amount is out of step with what the provider might get in other contexts in that geographic region, whatever the case might be. Then when you go into that arbitration, right, the arbitrator is keying sort of the who wins decision off of who's closest to that amount. And so if that starting point, that qualifying payment amount is a little farther away from where the provider's bill would have been, the provider's coming into that arbitration in a sort of a losing position. You should look no further than to the lawsuits filed against the regulators and the like against this law for how people are reacting to it, right? There's a a series of lawsuits that have been filed by the provider community, and the health plan community is sort of filing amicus briefs saying, no, we actually are okay with how they implemented the regulations here. So that's where things stand currently. And the provider community has alleged that what's going to happen here is that it's going to lead to a rise in cost overall, even if it might save individuals money in the short term. And the reason why is that, you know, the cost is the cost, right? And if providers can no longer recoup those costs from either the health plan or the individual who received the services, what has historically happened is that, you know, the provider community would look to bake that into other costs of doing business, right? So we can't get the $100,000 from this service here. So globally, everybody else is going to pay $100,000 when they come into this you know, hospital. So you know, it remains to be seen because this law has only been in effect for one month now, what will come to fruition and whether things will stabilize in this space. But those are the stakes that each side are setting for the time being. Yeah. So we, we do have, I guess, you know, one full month as of the day we're recording this one full month under our belt with the No Surprises Act. What sort of steps are plans and providers supposed to be or recommended that they take to prepare to comply with this law? Yeah, great question. So on the health plan side, most of these things are going to be operationalized by health plans, third party administrators and or insurance carriers. Because most of this is just adjudicating the claim, right, which is never anything that employers have done internally to begin with. There is a notice that health plans are required to provide to participants informing them of their rights under this law. But beyond that, it's mainly just a modicum of leaning on your third-party administrator to implement the law. On the provider side, I mean, this one's, I think, a more challenging proposition. So recall that, as I mentioned earlier, in at least one of these scenarios, that being where an in-network hospital has services provided by a non-network provider, say, for instance, the doctor with visiting privileges, there is a circumstance in which the provider can obtain a participant's consent to receiving those services. And if that consent is received, then all bets are off and balance billing is once again permitted because, again, the participant has consented to the fact that that might occur. There's a specific format that that consent might take or must take, I should say. So if a provider finds himself in that setting, right, I'm a visiting anesthesiologist at a hospital where I'm not necessarily in network with whoever the relevant insurance network is, 
it probably behooves that provider to at least consider implementing a process whereby participant consent can be requested to protect the provider a little bit more. I'd like to thank Ben for joining us today on the Healthcare Beat. We certainly appreciate all your insight and sharing your expertise in this area. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of CyFarth's Healthcare Beat podcast, bringing you the latest developments and pressing issues in healthcare. So you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to visit CyFarth.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We look forward to having you with us again soon.